2: They're calling it the cash for cushion scandal. How did a project to spruce up the Prime Minister's flat turn into a scandal that's engulfed number 10?
3: Things that get other people into trouble, he seems to escape from. But of these various different problems that he faces, the one with the potential to have the most serious impact is the flat.
2: Formal investigations have now been launched, accusations levelled and denied. But could the ongoing spate of revelations derail Boris Johnson's time at Number 10?
3: He goes on and on, Mr Speaker, about wallpaper when, as I've told him umpteen times now, I paid for it.
4: Mr Speaker, normally when people don't want to incriminate themselves, they go, no comment.
2: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Anatomy of a Number 10 Political Scandal.
4: My name is Stephen Swinford and I'm the political editor at The Times.
2: It's been a hell of a week for Stephen Swinford.
4: Tired, a bit broken, you know, standard. (laughs) Where are you at the moment? Just outside on the roof. We've got a little balcony outside our office.
2: The roof of Parliament isn't normally the safest spot for journalists. In the original House of Cards series, it was literally their downfall. But today... It's a safer spot than the Times Westminster office, where the political team has been under siege with an endless volley of incoming WhatsApp messages and frenzied phone calls. In the last few days, two scandals have emerged in parallel. First, that the Prime Minister allegedly said last autumn that he'd rather see bodies pile high than have another lockdown. And second. That there's some impropriety in the way his flat refurbishment was paid for. He denies them both, but Dominic Cummings, on the other hand...
4: We are basically in the middle of a civil war between Boris Johnson and his former advisor Dominic Cummings and everyone has something to say about it. Everyone has an opinion and there is bile that is flowing all over the place. I think some of the messages that have come up in the last few days, you don't stick a pair of size 10s into a hornet's nest, uh, which is a reference to Boris Johnson publicly accusing Dominic Cummings of leaking against him. Uh, And that's exactly what has happened. It is absolutely crazy out there at the moment, and and, uh, one of the more extraordinary moments in what has been a very relentless period of political history.
2: I mean, we're used to politics being quite vicious, being fierce, but it's not usually quite this bad in terms of a civil war. I mean, this is... Number 10, turning in on itself. Have you ever known a period like this?
4: No, I think it's really unusual. And one of the reasons why it's so unusual is because Dominic Cummings is a very unusual figure. He basically has a version of events and he wants to get that version out there. He warmed up with a 1,000 word blog and he's going to be talking to MPs about it in depth next month. He's almost someone that relishes tearing up the normal rulebook for how former advisors and serving advisors behave. And that is exactly what we're seeing at the moment.
2: Well, take us back to the beginning. You know, How did this begin? So back in September 2020, the government was being advised by SAGE to go into a second lockdown. And when there are leaks from Downing Street, they start to emerge. Talk us through those leaks. What were we hearing?
4: Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson were effectively joined at the hip for a long period. Dominic Cummings has never been far from the prime minister's side as he faced Brexit battles in Parliament. The eyes to the right, 329. And secured a stunning general election success. There was an alliance there over Brexit, which served them both very well, both Mm. backed it completely. And then they got through the general election. Obviously Johnson came, came away with an 80 seat majority. Things went awry during the pandemic. So Dominic Cummings, in the very early stages of the pandemic, was lobbying the Prime Minister to go into a lockdown. He was making the case very strongly. The Prime Minister, who's a libertarian, didn't want to, and he resisted it. So that was in the early stage, of first lockdown. By the time of the second lockdown and the discussion around the second lockdown, which was in September of last year, hmm. everything had changed. So by that stage, the government had in place projections, and those projections were ringing alarm bells, both in the scientific community and in Downing Street. And Cummings, during a five-day period in September, tried and failed to convince the Prime Minister to implement a second lockdown.
2: How did he go about trying to persuade him? And how did the leaks fit into all of this?
4: The leaks come a little bit later. So during that period in September, Cummings, over a five-day period, had a series of critical meetings with the Prime Minister, where I am told that everyone in the room, that was a room that included Chris Whitty, Patrick Vallance, figures that are very familiar to us now, Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, Dominic Cummings, everyone in the room was arguing for a lockdown, but the Prime Minister didn't want one. He was really worried about the impact of locking down for a second time and the impact that would have on the economy. He also had a fundamental belief that lockdowns didn't work. He, He thought that actually the economic harm outweighed the benefits to public health.
2: I mean, this is sort of surprising because we, we thought he'd had an epiphany after he'd been ill himself and realised that lockdowns and being cautious was, was important.
4: He did have an epiphany, but the epiphany came later. Mm. This was, you've got to remember, last summer, the government's messaging at the time was that people should go back into city centres, they should be going back to work. They thought it was over. So when the numbers started to creep back up, it triggered a ferocious debate in government. And what we've been reporting on a lot this week is some of the things that were said during that that debate in government. So Cummings tried to push the prime minister into locking down the economy again. Mm. He resisted. The prime minister used some language which listeners will find surprising, but he was saying things like, we should just let this rip because wow. the economic harm that locking down will do will do more damage than COVID. But Cummings was relentless. We are told that he used to turn up to every meeting that he went to with a large sheet of A3, which included on it the projections for hospitalizations, for deaths wow. and the infection rate. He'd say, oh, this has been a great meeting about civil service reform. Let's just start off by looking at this. So do you not think we should be looking down now? And he was trying to urge the prime minister to look down, but he failed. So they didn't lock down in September, and tempers frayed all over the place. There were there were small explosions going on in number 10, in number 11, where Rishi Sunak was very much opposed to a lockdown at that point. This all came to a head in October. There was a meeting of the Quad, which is the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, and Michael Gove, the Cabinet Office Minister. They decided at that meeting that actually we have no choice but to implement a month-long lockdown. Mm. Some of the language from that meeting that we heard about was extraordinary. Michael Gove was warning that soldiers would have to go to man hospitals because of the huge surge in COVID patients. They were talking about crisis. They were talking about mass graves. So their point was, if we don't do something, these are the scenarios we face. And the prime minister didn't want to go there. Two months after Cummings has advocated a lockdown, the Prime Minister finally implements one.
2: But the announcement wouldn't be on Boris Johnson's terms. Somebody internally, nicknamed the Chatty Rat, had leaked the plans to the Times. It kicked off a leak inquiry led by Cabinet Secretary Simon Case and a row that only seems to grow by the day.
4: We've run that story in Saturday's paper as an exclusive, which set the agenda for the whole of the country and forced Downing Street to bring forward the announcement. We had the detail of how long that lockdown would be. We knew what it would entail. It was a very, very strong leak. Unsurprisingly, that triggered a very, very robust response from the government they launched what has become known as the chatty rat leak inquiry to try to get to the bottom of who spoke to the Times and informed them of the contents of this top-secret meeting.
2: Who comes up with titles like
1: that, by the way? (laughs)
4: I
2: suspect it's journalese from uh, some of my
4: <laughs> friends that work at the tabloids. But the chatty rat, there have been numerous people in the frame on that. So cabinet ministers have been variously named by different papers. Dominic Cummings, the prime minister inferred, was behind it. He is furiously denied that he was behind it and said that actually he was exonerated by both the prime minister and Simon Case. So all of these months on, that inquiry still isn't resolved. And we're told, it will never actually be resolved because they cannot identify who spoke to the Times.
2: There are rumours that this inquiry has been put on a a back burner, effectively.
4: They are worried about where it goes. But Mm. I think more to the point, from what I'm told, they just don't know. They don't know who has spoken to the Times at all. So Dominic Cummings, furiously rejected suggestions he was behind the leak. Hmm. He says that he has WhatsApp messages to prove this. He implicated another senior advisor in Downing Street called Henry Newman, who used to work for Michael Gove, and said that he was the chatty rat. Now, sources close to Newman have furiously denied that in turn. Number 10 has also expressed its full support for Newman. So we're in a position where everyone is blaming each other for being the chatty rats, but no one has been identified. The other interesting thing coming said is that they used invasive techniques to conduct this leak inquiry, which is shorthand for getting the spooks involved to try to work out who has leaked this, so getting MI5 on board. Wow. But they still don't know. Simon Case suggested at a select committee this week it is unlikely that they ever will know.
2: I mean, at this point, it is very tempting <laughs> Given that Number 10 and the spooks and nobody's been able to get to the bottom of it, it's really tempting to ask you because I suppose, in a way, the political journalists at the Times are the only people who do know who the chatty rat was.
4: Which is undeniably true, but obviously good journalists never reveal their sources. But, I um, know.
2: Yes. <laughs> Damn. Um, but, so, so
4: that has caused a small explosion in its own life.
2: Can you sort of explain why that leak was so important? Did it bounce the Prime Minister into into the policy or was he already signed up to it
4: My understanding of it is that they were due to announce it on Monday and that had been agreed by the quad. by the Times putting it out on the Saturday we brought forward that announcement by three days. So the significance in the grand scheme of stuff I'm not sure, but mm. nonetheless it provokes absolute fury within the
2: government. The chatting rat leak wasn't the only incident at the time that has come back to haunt the Prime minister. interestingly,
4: Before we even published it, there was another event that took place that night. Boris Johnson was in his study and he was furious at having been put in a position, as he saw it, where he had to impose another lockdown to control coronavirus. And that is where he used this now infamous awful phrase, I will never want to lock down again, I've agreed to this one, but let the bodies pile up in their thousands, I will never lock down again, which he denies saying, we have spoken to numerous sources that say that he did say that, the doors to his study were open, they go on to the private office in Downing Street, so he was overheard by others saying that very loudly at the time, nonetheless he is still denying having used that phrase, Can the Prime Minister tell
3: the House categorically, yes or no, did he make those remarks? No, Mr Speaker, and I think what, I think, uh, the the Right Honourable Gentleman is is a lawyer. Well, somebody here isn't telling the truth, and I remind
4: him, the Minister of Code says, and I quote, Ministers who knowingly mislead Parliament will be expected to offer their resignation. We may never get to the bottom of what he did or did not say there.
2: That was a really interesting political moment when the prime minister and various ministers deny that that phrase was ever used and yet the entire political lobby is convinced it definitely was. I know you can't tell us about sources but can you give us sort of an idea of why political journalists are so certain?
4: The prime minister has denied it outright and that is his right to deny that but I've spoken to three separate sources who all say they heard him saying that these aren't the same type of people. They're different yeah. types of sources. They're from different sides of this debate. And they all say they've heard him saying it. And from what I can see in the political lobby here in Westminster, other journalists are having the same conversations as me, and they're arriving at the same mm-hmm. conclusion. And there are also some that are suggesting that he used it on more than one occasion. We talked earlier about the Prime Minister when he was resisting the second lockdown using the phrase, let it rip. We're told that he used that phrase dozens of times last year in the, in the run up to the second lockdown, that that was something he repeatedly said. It was his way of talking about it and venting his opinion quite forcefully. He also kept comparing himself to the mayor in Jaws. The mayor in Jaws makes a decision to keep the beaches open, despite the fact that there is a giant shark on the prowl, which is largely seen as a political misstep. Johnson has in the past argued that the mayor was a great hero because in the face of irrational fears, he essentially held his ground and resisted the political pressure to close the breaches. And that, that was an analogy the Prime Minister himself used repeatedly to describe his approach to lockdowns.
2: I mean, it's quite an interesting moment when the Prime Minister isn't really believed. I mean, is, is that quite new for, for, for the political lobby, all to know that the Prime Minister said something, but they're all convinced it's not true?
4: As a journalist, my job is to report the conflict. It's not for me to say what the Prime Minister is saying is a lie or is not true. It's me to report this is what the Prime Minister is saying on one side, and this is what other people are saying on the other side. There is a conflict between the two. But you're right, it was a moment, because what was leading the bulletins and what was leading the stories were the claims of the earwitnesses, as they're called, or eyewitnesses, to what was said in that study, not the Prime Minister's denial.
2: Let the bodies pile high in their thousands, an incendiary remark.
3: I mean, this is an extraordinary uh, front page.
4: And that was because there were multiple sources that were saying the same thing. And the weight that those, those sources are being given is a problem for Downing Street because it is effectively putting the word of those sources above the prime minister's word. And that is a very difficult position for any prime minister to be in.
2: Now, after that moment in the autumn when they had to announce another lockdown would be happening, Dominic Cummings and many of his closest allies are suddenly out of number 10.
3: That is Dominic
4: Cummings. He is leaving Downing Street and we are told tonight that he is leaving
3: for good.
2: We see him walking away with a cardboard box with godly knows what in it. And then he doesn't resurface until... The last few weeks. Tell me about that. How, how worried were Number 10 when suddenly he popped up again?
4: Number 10 have been worried about Dominic Cummings for a while and that he could do very, very serious damage. It's a pretty unprecedented situation. He knows where the skeletons are. He knows where the bodies are buried. And he has agreed to give evidence to MPs on May the 26th.
2: May the 26th. It could be the big Westminster Day of Reckoning. It's a day when Dominic Cummings is due to give evidence to a parliamentary inquiry into the government's response to the pandemic. In a blog post last Friday, he wrote, I will not engage in media briefing regarding these issues, but will answer questions about any of these issues to Parliament on the 26th of May for as long as MPs want.
4: And when he does that, we've been told he's effectively going to accuse the Prime Minister of costing lives because of his obsession with keeping the economy open. And he wants to go a lot further than that if he can. I'm told he's got WhatsApp messages, I'm told he's got emails, there's boxes and boxes of different evidence. Mm-hmm. He's obviously got a lot of personal messages from the Prime Minister, which is gonna be a problem. There's even suggestions that he's got audio recordings, which oh, have wow. not been verified, but nonetheless they are completely terrifying Downing Street at the moment because if they publicly contradict something he said and he has an audio recording of it, that will be a problem.
2: Coming up, why some are saying Boris Johnson has started a petrol fight with an arsonist. And what it's really like inside the Downing Street flat. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: At about 5 p.m. last Friday, the Wi-Fi in Westminster faltered as everyone logged on to read the blog post that Dominic Cummings had just published. The 1,000-word diatribe levelled all sorts of accusations at Boris Johnson.
4: I was told in advance that something was coming and that I should be on the lookout for about a couple of hours before, hitting refresh on that blog, waiting to see something. When it came, boy, it didn't disappoint. I mean, it was comprehensive and it was essentially accusing the Prime Minister of behaving in an unethical and potentially illegal way over the Downing Street flat and the refurbishment of that. It was saying that he wasn't the chatty rat and implicating Henry Newman, and that's something Henry Newman denies. It was fighting on about six different fronts. I mean, on a normal day, any one of the points he made would have been a splash. But to have so much in one day was just off the charts.
2: The Times columnist Robert Colville described this briefing war as Boris Johnson starting a petrol fight with an arsonist. It doesn't seem like the wisest thing to do.
4: We are told that Boris Johnson was at the end of his wits. He was really angry about it and he decided to do something. It was effectively, it's been described to us as lashing out. It doesn't look like there was a lot of strategy behind it. They obviously knew that Cummings was going to give evidence to MPs next month about the handling of the pandemic. It was a moment of anger.
2: And this was Boris Johnson himself phoning up journalists. I mean, did he, did he call somebody at The Times or...?
4: I can't possibly talk about who put in the calls, but I can tell you that Boris Johnson was personally excised by this. He was angry and upset by the leaks.
2: You mentioned how in the blog, Dominic Cummings didn't just say things which were damaging. He actually accused the Prime Minister of doing things which were illegal, which is a whole other problem for him. Can you just explain the illegality point?
4: One of the central issues here is who paid for the refurbishment of the Prime Minister's flat above number 11 Downing Street there was a suggestion that Boris Johnson couldn't afford it himself. So he looked into getting Tory donors to pay that money through a Downing Street trust, which would have effectively covered the costs as charitable donations. Now, the suggestion from Cummings was that that would have been illegal to do that. It would have been unethical, and there's a question of undue influence of any Tory donor that is effectively paying for the bedroom that the prime minister is sleeping in and the bed linen he's sleeping on. That is a conflict of interest. Yeah. And that has created a whole explosion in its own right, which is still unresolved as we speak.
2: This week, the Electoral Commission launched an investigation into the funding of the Downing Street flat. They said there were reasonable grounds to suspect that an offence or offences may have occurred. One man who knows the flat well is the Times columnist and Conservative peer Danny Finkelstein.
3: I've been there dozens of times, um, particularly when David Cameron was Prime Minister, but also when Theresa May was Prime Minister and with John Major, although John Major was in number 10, which is a slightly smaller flat, and I visited that also when George Osborne was Chancellor. So they're not administrative buildings, these. They're nice places. The Prime Minister's flat in number 11 is a nice, decent-sized house, even though it's stuck on top of another house, and in the middle of Westminster, which is a slightly odd place to live. They've always been reasonably well-decorated. I was always rather envious of David Cameron's taste, which I thought was rather good.
2: (laughs) Well, if anyone can do a through the keyhole, it's you. What was it like when David Cameron lived there?
3: When you come into the flat, there's a sort of big, slight open area which had a lot of modern art. and It it was done really nicely, I thought. Much of that was still there when Theresa was Prime Minister. But everyone's taste differs and I don't blame a new incumbent for wanting to make it personal.
2: And what did you think of the criticism of it being John Lewis-like?
3: I don't think politically it's a very good thing. It was a kind of taste point about age, really, which is interesting because it's probably as much about the age difference between Theresa May and Carrie as it is in the sort of plushness difference.
2: So talk us through this current crisis.
3: Boris Johnson is the latest to make it his home, but his decision
4: to make it his own with a reportedly £200,000 refurbishment has raised questions over who paid for it and whether he received help from an undeclared Tory donor.
5: The Prime Minister has met the costs of the Downing Street refurbishment from his own pocket. And everything that needs to be declared either has been or will be declared officially.
4: So did he take money at any stage from a Tory donor?
5: As I've said, he has met the costs out of his own pocket.
4: But that isn't answering the question, though, is it?
3: Okay, let's first of all say, is it a crisis? Okay, some people have asked me, is this similar to the kind of endless sleaze rouse of the John Major era? This issue
4: of the conduct of members of Parliament, the Conservatives, and Mr Major, have brought upon themselves. I have made it clear from the very outset that these matters must be properly examined. Why else would I have set up the inquiries?
3: It's nothing like that. I worked there day in, day out. Every day brought a fresh, bad, politically impactful story to a party but didn't have a majority. It was miles behind in the opinion polls that was facing a formidable rival in Tony Blair, whom everyone assumed would become Prime Minister. The political atmosphere was very different.
4: There are some times in politics when the ball just rolls in the opposite direction and there isn't a great deal that you can do about it.
3: So I don't think The atmosphere is the same, and I I wouldn't rush to accept that it was a crisis. What I would argue is that it has the potential for that. And one of the things about Boris Johnson that's always said is, you know, the rules don't apply to Boris Johnson. I say, well, that is true, and it has two sides to it. One thing is, yes, it, they don't apply to Boris Johnson, which means that things that get other people into trouble, he seems to escape from. Yeah. But it is also true that he doesn't have the same insulation that other prime ministers have, that come from an assumption of solidity and a sort of acceptance that that person is not very accident-prone, otherwise they wouldn't be prime minister. Those things don't apply to Boris Johnson. And it means that he is more vulnerable than John Major, despite the fact that the situation is very, very different to individual incidents, particularly involving him and his personal finances and what he does personally.
2: That's so interesting.
3: Well, that's the reason why I think of these various different problems that he faces, the one with the potential to have the most serious impact is the flat. Let's take the accusation that he said or didn't say something about bodies piling up. Well, most people's view is it's his job to do something. A disputed allegation about what he said or didn't say is of secondary importance to them. Those people who for whom it confirms what they've always thought about Boris Johnson will regard it as very important. Those other people will, will not. And I don't imagine that's going to cause him, at least at the moment, serious political difficulties difficulties even if there are listeners to this you think it ought because that's not what we're discussing we're discussing whether it will then there are obviously all the questions about the chatty rat leak inquiry these are process issues did he or did he not decide he wasn't going to have an inquiry again disputed information in which the information comes from dominic cummings whose trustworthiness is not probably that strong among members of the public and again a political process issue and then you have the flat well People can dismiss it as trivia, but one time, one of these won't go away. And uh, it's difficult to predict which it will be. That's why I think this one, which relates to things he's already done and can't undo and stories he has to unveil and tell people about that maybe he doesn't want to tell them, that is a trickier one, particularly because it's quite graspable. Uh, It relates to something that everybody can understand, which is receiving money and decorating your flat.
2: I think a lot of people will be offended by, you know, the comments around John Lewis and the idea that anybody needs to spend so much money, you know, doing their place up. All of that sort of probably doesn't play well with the public. But just take us through what exactly the wrongdoing is here.
3: The thing that's a problem is if you hold public office, you can't receive emoluments from people right if you are a minister somebody else can't pay for your furniture now it's clear that understanding this or being brought to understand this at some point boris johnson realized that no other arrangement apart from him paying for his own furniture would be acceptable or legal it's also obvious that he at least contemplated an alternative to that which was extremely unwise to do If, however, it turns out that the money to pay for it went through some Baroque route, it may be that it offends against either the law or ministerial code that govern receiving money from other people. Because you can't, when you're in public office, be indebted to... Other people, even if you have shares, you, you you have to insulate yourself from them rising up and down. Uh, you, you've got to do that in order to ensure there isn't even the possibility of being seen to behave improperly.
2: What happens under those circumstances? Have we had an example of a, of a prime minister contravening the law at any stage?
3: N- n- no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I've thought about this a bit. So I don't mm. think an incident with a lot of precedence, and by the way, of course, if there has been any, this is very important to emphasise, if there has been any illegality or there has been any impropriety, it's quite possible the illegality won't have been his, but it will have been some institutions rather than his. It'll be about declarations of the Conservative Party or it'll be about the Cabinet Office lending money to people. But it is at least possible. I don't know what would happen in those circumstances.
2: So with an Electoral Commission investigation underway and Dominic Cummings due to give evidence next month, just how serious is this for Boris Johnson? Here's The Times political editor Stephen Swinford again.
4: YouGov two weeks ago gave the Toys a 14-point lead. That is mm. reduced, but it's still a really big lead on what it was. and Labour think this will cut through. Every day there's more evidence of this. Lead. It is contemptuous.
3: And frankly, this attempt by the Prime Minister to say nothing to see here, nobody should be bothered with what we're doing is also contemptuous. I don't think there's anything to, uh, to see here or to, to, uh, to worry about.
4: The Conservatives see it as a distraction, but ultimately they think that the success of the vaccination programme is more important.
2: Just finally, where does this go next?
4: I think this goes in two directions. So in the short term, there's the issue of the flat. The government is going to have to make some disclosures about that. I think they're going to be quite painful. Mm. And then we've got the drumbeat in the run-up to May the 26th. And what interested me about that Dominic Cummings blog was he was offering to give evidence to any parliamentary inquiry about this, not just the one we're seeing on the handling of the pandemic. He was basically saying to MPs, here I am. You want text messages? I'll give you them. You want WhatsApp messages? I'll give you them. So expect a... Succession of quite sensational headlines in the run-up to May the 26th. This is not going away anytime soon.
2: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, political editor at The Times, Stephen Swinford, and Times columnist, Danny Finkelstein. You can find all of Stephen and Danny's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Oliver Adamson and James Shield. If there's a story that you think we should be covering, any ideas for future episodes, or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do get in touch. Drop us a line at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Have a lovely weekend.